how did I miss this my whole life? You know, and this because I just didn't know. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, and and I truly cared, as you said, it's close to my heart. And you know, I, I was one of the founding members of of, of uh, our uh, Pride Prom. And uh, you know, I I I truly cared, and I truly want to gauge the community. And and I know they sense that as well. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my own time with the community. It wasn't just uh, a job for Keith Richards or Consul Richards or Sergeant Richards. It was, they need me. I need them more than they need me. <clears throat> and, and they're my friends. Hello, my friends. I'm your host, Victor Rampadrat. Welcome to the show where we share the lived experiences of ordinary people just like you. We're amplifying your voice to provide a different perspective on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our goal is simple, humanize DEI so we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect. Our next guest is a local superhero. I met Keith Richards after being appointed to the local police chief's diversity committee. He was running a recruiting booth and I was secret shopping the service. That was over a decade ago. And now we're working together to change the hearts and minds of people one person at a time. He's one of the smartest people I know on the topic of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's not just me saying that. There's many others. Thank you for joining me on this journey. And welcome to the show, Keith. How's it going today? It's going excellent. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on there, Victor. I'm appreciating it. and looking forward to the opportunity to engage in some meaningful dialogue. Very good. Very good. Well, listen, you know, one of the things that we do here is we always like to dive right in. And you had immigrated from England, you came to Canada, you were a young boy. What was it like growing up here in Canada back then being a young black gentleman in Canada, in yeah, Toronto so, specifically? Uh, I came uh, came here uh, age of five. I was the youngest of the siblings. Um, and I will tell you, you know, it's funny because I, I do have a lot of memories of England, but obviously my, my heart is, is Canadian. You know, I wasn't born here. But if you ever ask me, I would say I'm Canadian. I wouldn't reference my British uh, birthplace. And uh, the thing, the thing that I, I noticed at a very young age was, um, you know, I would be in the parks and I would be at, out at recess, and the kids would all gather around me and say, "Talk, talk," because I had this British accent. I didn't know I had an accent, but they knew I had an accent. They knew I sounded funny, and they would circle around me and say, "Just talk." And I think what are these kids asking me, you know? And I would start talking, they're like, ha, 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 listen to me, sounds so funny, right? And uh, that was my first uh, introduction to realizing that I was different. And um, it's funny because, you know, people always want to focus on things like skin color because that's what we notice, but that wasn't my, my, my lived experience. It was my accent that made me different from the other kids. And so over the course of many years following that experience, uh, I did everything humanly possible to get rid of my accent. So I don't have one anymore. Uh, who knew that later in life that would have become something cool? I might have tried to hold on to it. But at the time, that it was just like, I want to fit in. I want to be like everybody else. I just want to be normal is what my feelings were. I just wanted that, whatever normal looks like, right? You know, I just wanted to be like them. And, and not stand out. And so I did everything humanly possible until I could get rid of that accent. It's kind of funny, in, in my household growing up is, as a kid, my next sister, the one that's uh, four years older than me, she has a Canadian accent that speaks with British words. So she's kind of like this hybrid in between. The older sister was actually nine years older than me, full-blown British accent. She never lost it um, because she came over later. So it's just kind of weird how we have this, 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 you know, division on how we uh, converse with British, non-British, Canadian, that kind of stuff. But that was a very young age when I, I that was my first introduction to you are different from them, you know, and uh, but, uh, you know, great, you know, nonetheless. And that became my journey um, as a Canadian. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, that must that must um, make for an interesting family dynamic when you're having conversations because you have, you know, someone speaking in a full British accent, someone speaking in sort of a Canadian accent with British words. And then you've got you sort of the Canadianized, uh, you know, you've got none of that. And, and you're not uh, like your your family heritage is actually from Trinidad, correct? Yeah, so and, and which just adds to the complication because 
Uh, I come from this West Indian background, so it wouldn't be unusual in my house to have British food and West Indian food for breakfast mixed or dinner or lunch. It was... It could be anything. It could be bangers and mashed right beside Aki and Saltfish, right? And so it was just this really, um, I mean, it was my normal, so I didn't know any different till I got in, the, you know, till I got into the outside world and started realizing that those two foods actually don't mix, you know, the two different cultures. I didn't know any better. And uh, and uh, so it, it does make for this interesting experience where you're, you're born of, uh, you know, all the kids are British, but we're born of West Indian parents. And you come over to Canada and it's just this, you know, we were, my house was a melting pot, you know, and, uh, and uh, so that was, gave me a, a definitely a unique perspective on, on Canadian living, really, and living in general. I love that. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned about Canadian living it, it, with, with so much immigration here in this country, you know, it really is a melting pot of unique experiences of, of different people experiencing different things within their household, but also I want to say maybe fitting in or belonging in the cultural norm that exists within the fabric of Canada as well, right? Because we do have different societal norms, uh, very different from the West Indian background or the English background. I mean, there are some, um, I guess, commonalities being that we are a, uh, a monarchy sort of country, but at the end of the day, you know, coming from that West Indian background, it's, it's very different. Now you are a black gentleman and you were in law enforcement and typically speaking, that is not a, a career path, at least from my experience for, for young black males, what made you be drawn to become a police officer? And did you take any flack from it from friends or family and, and things of that nature? Yeah. So, um, it's kind of interesting how that happened. Um, you know, I grew up in Pickering and, uh, three of the local police officers took an interest in me. I was probably around eight, nine, some that, somewhere in that area, just for whatever reason, took an interest in me. My, my nickname growing up was Bubba. So they never called me Keith. They always called me Bubba. They were like, Hey, what's, what's going on, Bubba? And, um, yeah, and that's how everybody knew me. And, uh, they would literally, I would be on my bicycle. They'd stop me. We're heading, Bubba. And now I'm sure people driving by thought that kid must be in trouble, but I was never in trouble. I never got in trouble, um, but I'm sure that was the perception. Uh, and so they would just pull over and just talk to me, you know, and I'm looking back now, I'm positive that none of the three knew the other two were doing this. So this went on for years. And then I got my license, turned 16, got my license, got my first car. Now they were pulling me over and they would literally just pull me over and say, what's going on today, Bubba? And they would literally just talk to me all the time. And uh, that relationship was probably a good decade anyway. And, uh, and th that's just my, that was my experience. That said, I grew up in a household, obviously of West Indian parents where uh, police scene was not admirable in the, in the, in, in the, in the, um, in the islands. And there's a lot of corruption that comes along with policing. Policing is underfunded in the Caribbean, and so their scrutiny for who they hire is lower, and, and there's a lot of violence in some areas. So uh, policing is not looked at as an admirable profession um, in, in, for West Indian culture. And I, I distinctly remember my mother used to say to me, if you see the police, you run. Uh, I never took her advice. I'm kind of glad, but that's what she would say to me. That Of all the things that my mother said to me re referencing the police, that is the only thing I remember. I know the conversation was longer than that, but that is the, the piece that was emblazoned in my mind was you see the police, you run. And I never ran. Um, and, uh, you know, so I developed this relationship with these three officers. Now I fast forward, I'm a young man. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm in the world of work and working for Chrysler and Ajax at the time. And I just kept thinking, this is not what I want to do for the next three decades in employment. I, I just felt like I had a, a greater purpose and I never forgot that experience with those three officers. And I thought, I want to do what they did, you know, and I, I want to change the narrative of, of, you know, what my mom was saying. So I started going through, became an officer, went through all the, 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 the competitions, the auditions and, and, you know, the interviews and the scrutiny and you name it. And it's months and months of scrutiny you have to go through to become an officer. And I was successful with Ontario Police College, came back from Ontario Police College and 
uh, and started my journey and my career. And it's funny. So I started telling my, first I told my parents that this was the direction I was going. And they just, they didn't say no. My parents are very good. They they never stopped me from doing anything I wanted to do. They, you know, they're more with a bit of caution saying, you sure this is what you want to do? And I'm saying, I'm sure this is what I want to do. And they would say, okay. And I could see my mom in particular looking at me like, okay. It's almost like she's doing a self-check, like I got to breathe. She, she never wanted to tell me that's what she didn't want me to do. She would never say that. I'm not sure if she was disappointed in my decision because she would never show it. Um, and my parents are always about supporting me, even if it was to my own detriment. So, uh, so I, I did that. And then my friends, you know, I started telling my friends, that, you know, about this situation and, and what I was doing. And, and, and most of them were okay with it. It was more of a, I hope you don't change, right? That was the, the concern is that policing might change me. Um, none, of them, none of my friends are anti-police per se, but they were really uh, concerned that it might change who their friend is and, and was kind of thing. You know, looking back, it didn't change me. And I lived a pretty clean life anyways, young man. So that was never a narrative that I had to consider. I then fast forward to these three officers who, when I became an officer, were still officers. So which was really neat to be an officer. And then, you know, it was it was like you were, you were in the same space with your gods sort of thing. You know, I knew them like looking up and then I knew them looking straight up. And then I'm in behind the counter with these three gentlemen, so to speak. And that was um, that was uh, the moment when I thought I've I've arrived, you know. And I mean, I have arrived in life, you know, is to be in the same space with these guys who I admired, pretty much from afar, because I never told them I admired them. I just kind of kind of gone. There's officer bases pulling me over, right? You know, and hey, Bubba, what's going on? And and now, you know, now you know, we're 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 workmates, and and it was just it was just a very uh, unique experience for somebody that was in my position. And then my journey started uh, with me wanting to bring the same uh, level of engagement that was brought to me. Because I kept thinking, okay, my parents have now become pro-police, which was really odd, I will tell you that. Because at first they were just like, let him do what he wants to do. Uh, we'll support him no matter what. And, and then at that point, my parents had moved to Florida. So then I would go to Florida to go visit them. And my parents went from, you see the police you run? I would walk in their house and there's, so, so, you know, uh, so, support the Sarasota police, support the the state trooper, you know, Florida state troopers. So there's all the support stuff running around the house. And I, I do, and they were donating to the police and all this stuff. I kept thinking, where am I? Right? I was told to run. And now they've become the biggest supporters of the police fraternity. And so, uh, which was really neat. Uh, I didn't see that coming. And they became this, this, this champion for law enforcement um, directly as a result of my experience and my lived experience, obviously having that watershed moment with them. And so I kept thinking, if I can not only change my perceptions, I can win over my friends and have people like my generational parents, who I might say didn't think the most of policing, become the champions of policing. I thought, I want to re replicate that. Right, because if you think about it this way, my parents grew up during the days of Martin Luther King. My parents grew up watching, albeit from afar, but watching Martin Luther King peaceful protests, having water cannons put on him, having police dogs sicked on him, having having been watching people be beaten um, because they were trying to fight for equality, not supremacy. They just wanted to be equal, and and in a nonviolent fashion, and so that immediately became part of their reference. And yet they themselves said, no, we are a champion of police. And I thought, this is amazing. I need to replicate this. And the only way I can replicate this is to become one of those three officers. So, you know, I start getting on my patrol uniform and I start going out and I start doing the same engagement that was that I experienced. Now, do I know whether or not uh, I've made that same difference in somebody's life? I believe I have. I've received a lot of feedback from parents who have said, my kid talks about you all the time, you know, and, 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 it, and it's really, really uh, um, a neat experience when you can win people over. And I'm sure there are people that have, I've won over that I've never heard the feedback from that have 
gone on to do great things in life. Um, you know, they say a true gift is not expecting, you know, a gift in return. And so my idea was to give that gift to as many young people, particularly young people. Uh, not that I wouldn't, you know, engage in somebody that was my age, but I, I just have this, I tend to gravitate towards young people wanting to win them over because I was young when I was won over. And um, so I, I, I've done as much as I could to make that investment in young people to change those perceptions, almost like I'm trying to make this deposit that some other officer will make a withdrawal on down the road, right? And so uh, I, that was that was my, my, my biggest goal was how do I engage in young people? It didn't matter what their racial identity was. If, if, if you were a, a kid, I wanted to I wanted to be that first first positive experience for you. And if I wasn't the first positive experience, I want to reinforce maybe a previous positive experience. And if your first experience wasn't positive, then I want to rewrite that narrative, right? Now, obviously, in policing, you don't always get that opportunity. You know, if somebody's done something wrong, sometimes they have to be held accountable. But more often than not, particularly with young people, uh, police are given a lot of latitude to hopefully re-divert or divert them into a good place um, and not to lock up and throw away the key. So there's a lot of latitude in terms of trying to be able to engage young people and put them on the right path. So I utilize all of the uh, laws, all of the community uh, partners, uh, my own experiences, uh, my own time, my personal time as well, and everything I could do that I could resource to engage in young people, both those who are troubled and those who are already on the right path to, to make that difference because I know the, the merits of that experience firsthand. And so I want to do that. And essentially, I want to pay it forward, you know, Victor, and then, uh, and I feel like I've accomplished that. So that's kind of how my whole journey went. Um, and to this day, you know, all of my friends and family are still, even though I'm now retired, they're still the biggest uh, supporters and champion of the police, which is kind of neat to see that there's this uh, legacy feeling that, uh, of, of the police that I helped contribute to, to the lives of people around me. Well, I can tell you for myself, you are one of the contributing factors to changing the narrative on my view of the police, because before sort of meeting people like yourself and Chris and, and Jeff, and, and these are a bunch of names that, you know, our guests will probably not know, but you know, Keith is actually uh, someone I've known in real life for quite some time. And, Prior to meeting him, I had my own negative interactions with the police and to realize that the heart of some of these officers are, are truly genuine and they really want to make a difference. And I think it's cool because I didn't know that story about these three officers who engaged this young man. And I think that, you know, in retrospect, now that I know that part of your history, I can truly understand why you have put so much of an emphasis on some of the work that you've done in, in things like youth and policing and, and your champion of that cause as well as so many other community engagement units. And I always would ask myself like this guy has a full-time job <laughs> yeah. and then has like a full-time job in his own time doing all of these things. How do you find time? Yeah. But it was just something you were so passionate about. It was just Keith always had a smile, always had a laugh. Yeah. always had a warm and welcoming presence. And I love that. Now, obviously you talked about your parents moving to Florida and being huge advocates of the police. It'll be almost two years now where there was an incident that happened in Minneapolis that took the life of a, a black man, George Floyd. And it also brought, a huge spotlight to policing and the challenges that are faced in that community. Being a black officer, someone who wore that badge with pride, but also being a black man, seeing one of your own people on the ground with a knee on his neck. What was that like for you? Yeah, that was, um, that was a, a, I feel like a hard time for me because, you know, and, and you said it right, you know, I, I, specific to the George Floyd incident, it was like I was living in two worlds, you know, I was living in the policing world, but I, you know, I always remind people, I'm a black man first and a police officer second. You will see who I am as a general human long before you know I'm, I'm a member of law enforcement. And, and that was a difficult time because for a lot of racialized people, they felt like they couldn't 
be publicly, at least not in the police fraternity, upset about the situation. And and that was hard because I would have people the the, the next day after that that's that that event, I would have people uh, checking in on me, which is really the first time in, in in three decades that I've ever had that experience. And I had both white and black members of policing checking in on me and, and, and others as well. It was a very um, very odd experience. And anybody that would that would uh, that would just say it was just another event is completely wrong. I had not had the, black people have died before, white people have died before, you know, South Asians have died before. It doesn't matter. People have died at the hands of law enforcement before and nobody received the check-in. This was different. Right? The whole world had seen what happened. Somebody died on camera. You know, and 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 and, and I will say needlessly died on camera because it didn't have to happen. And and it, it and it did divide the the to a certain amount, it did divide the black community and the policing world because you know, police, you know, as officers, we always want to feel and think the best of other officers. And Chauvin I, I would I would I could easily say that Chauvin didn't wake up that morning wanting to kill somebody, black or white, but he did. And so instead of trying to protect the police fraternity, say, oh, that wasn't the intent. No, it wasn't the intent. But it's not about the intent. It's what is the outcome? You know, and and people have to be when I see people, I mean police people have to be real about that, right? Yes, I don't believe he wants to commit a murder, but he did kill somebody. And that is undeniable. And when you understand police operations and use of force, there's no defending what happened, right? He, we know as officers how vulnerable somebody is once they're handcuffed behind their back. He was handcuffed behind his back. Uh, and that is undeniable. And there's so many facets of that that are undeniable, notwithstanding that there are four of them there versus one person handcuffed behind their back. That is undeniable worldwide. And and, you know, I would tell my people, you know, in, in law enforcement, like, instead of trying to to protect the police fraternity and protect the blue line and protect somebody who clearly made an egregious mistake, um, we have to open up dialogue and say, that was wrong. We have to learn from that experience. And, and the one thing that I will say about, the, you know, the George Floyd uh, situation was it allowed us a platform to engage in the truth. Um, now, like everything else, you're going to find some officers that will that will defend the police, even if to their own detriment. You can't change that group. And you're going to find members of the public that no matter what you do say or engage in, will not accept the police. They're just, they're too far gone. And that's both sides. There's about 10% of officers you can't change. There's about 10% of the members of the public you will never change. And so what I do is I invest in the 80% of the officers, 90% of the officers that will listen and 90% of the community that will listen. And I focus on those. I can't save the other ends. Um, I feel like maybe I could save the other ends if I was willing to invest the time because I feel like there is a, an opportunity if, if you could engage in meaningful dialogue. But I'm trying to get the biggest bang for the buck and I just don't have, I'm just one person. And so I just try to focus on the 90% of officers that are willing to engage in conversation and learning and experience. And I try to engage in the 90% of the public that are the same, that are willing to have that talk. It's not about me changing anybody's mind, changing anybody's uh, you know, frame of reference. It's about how can we have dialogue so that we can learn from it? Because everybody learns differently. Um, there are going to be some people that as soon as you start talking to them, they're going to say, okay, I get it. And there's going to be other people that said, you know what, Keith, that was great. I still don't get it, but thanks for sharing it with me. And maybe six months from now, something happens where they're like, you know what? Now I understand what Keith was talking about. Right. And so to me, again, it's like making that deposit, hoping for a future success on both sides. I'm just I think I'm kind of fortunate that I can speak from both sides of, of that equation and kind of sit in the middle. And so, you know, now that I'm retired, I'm now that black civilian again, so I can really, I can say, I, I, you know, it, nobody can look at me and say, well, you don't know what it's like to be, 
in the post George Floyd as a civilian. Well, yes, I'm now a civilian, so I do know what it's like. And they and the officers can't say we don't know what it's like. Yes, I can because I did 31 years in the uniform, so I know what that's like. Um, and you know, I, you know, my style of communication is I, I I'm not somebody that's very preachy. I'm, I'm more. Would you consider this? Would you consider that? I kind of like to leave people with with pieces of information to consider and draw their own conclusions. You'll never have me telling you what's right and what's wrong. I will only say to you, hey, do you think about this? Do you think about this? Do you think about that? And did you consider these things? And then they can say, yes, they consider them and it doesn't change their mind or yes, they consider them and I've given them food for thought. Um, but that's kind of how I like to, to communicate with people is to give them things to consider. Um, because if you try to ram it through, a lot of times they put up just a, a little bigger wall than you're you know, coming with your ramming um, instrument and, and then they just hold you back. And so to me, I just kind of leave it at the doorstep and I want them to open the door to, to consideration. That's amazing. I love that analogy and how you present. And it's it's been something that I've seen personally, the impact that it's had on other people and why I thought when we decided to start discourse to, you know, have you here to really bring forth the message that you have taken and championed for quite some time. This is not new to you. You've been doing this for over a decade. And I think that, you know, uh, when I talk about people who are doing diversity, equity, inclusion, I know there's a lot of people who became DEI consultants or strategists uh, post George Floyd because they were angered. They wanted to do something that it was, it was a response in social injustice, but you've been someone who has championed this cause for for like I said over a decade and and not only here but you've gone to the U.S. too and you, you've done some training and you, you you've talked to officers there and you've you know engaged in, in meaningful dialogue. What do you think is the is the sort of difference between a sort of Canadian policing or or, or policing here in Toronto, the GTA, and, and sort of what you've seen and come across in the United States? Yeah, so that, that's a great question. Um, you know. There's in Canada, and I'll speak for Ontario specifically. You know, all officers in Ontario are trained in the same location. So uh, whether you are in Thunder Bay, whether you are in Windsor, whether you're in Kingston, whether you're in Toronto, we all get trained at Ontario Police College. In the U.S., they don't have that 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 localized area for consistent training. In, in you know, there are uh, approximately eighteen thousand police departments, because that's what they call them in the U.S., in the U.S., of the 18,000, 50% have 11 or less per, um, per, per police department. So there's a lot of small police departments that may not have, one, the same budget to conduct the same scrutiny on who you hire, and then two, may not have the, the, the financial strength to do reinforced training and that kind of stuff. Some do. Some uh, some connect with neighboring police forces to 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 do a collective uh, style of, of training and learning, but the reality is most of them do it on their own, and so that becomes one of the challenges that the U.S. has is is that their policing is more siloed than we do uh, have that we have in Canada. Uh, they have a different way of how they look at uh, I call it heightened uh, engagement. Um, you know, in, in Canada, we have this threshold where for you to use your, your gun, you have to meet that threshold where, where danger is imminent, where you need to, to, to use your gun, as opposed to the U.S. where uh, their danger factor is different. So they come up with the gun and then if things are, are lowered um, as a result of, you know, whatever engagement that they now are able to see that they can then put the gun away. OK, this person is I can now put hands on this person, what have you. Um, Whereas for us, we have to meet that threshold. So for us, it's like kind of goes up. For them, it's like high danger factor. Okay, things are safe. I can put it away kind of thing. And so it's just two different ways of how you uh, you uh, look at that danger factor in, in your society. Uh, our laws are substantially different. Um, I know when I did my training in, in the U.S., they... You know, they have to deal with federal law and state law and that kind of stuff. And, and so we don't necessarily uh, cascade between those kind of jurisdictions, uh, you know, in Canada. So that is also a different experience. But culturally, um, 
their experiences are different. So if I speak um, historically from a law enforcement standpoint in the U.S., you know, it's, uh, well, let's talk about their community first. So they have a higher black population than we do here. They also have a higher South Asian population, higher Asian population, just by virtue of their size. But even culturally, we're different. So uh, the majority of blacks in the U.S. are descendants of slave, obviously from Africa. I think that everybody kind of knows that. The majority of Canadian blacks are from the Caribbean, right? Majority of Canadian blacks aren't descendants from Canadian slaves. And, which is a very different context versus the U.S., right? So most Blacks in, in Canada, West Indian background, most Blacks in the U.S., African background, um, you know, when you look at their, 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 their lineage. Then you bring in uh, your Asian population, your South Asian population that comes in post-slavery as well, and, and any other uh, backgrounds, Arabic, what have you, that you want to put in. Um, but I feel like it's important that law enforcement understand their community and i feel like that's one of the things that i always think are, are are missed opportunities in law enforcement is that we're so driven by this is the law that we forget about the people or we don't prioritize the people is maybe a better way to explain that and and and, and a, it's, it's a missed opportunity because we can look at it as this is the law if you steal that purse you get arrested and they're correct then they're not wrong in saying that and if every time we were engaged in with a member of the public it was about that stolen purse then yeah i guess we wouldn't have to change anything where things usually go awry for law enforcement both the u.s and canada is knowing your community knowing that if you're completing a community that has a high afghan population that maybe your the way that you engage them in conversation might be different than your black population. Or if you are working in an area like a Chinatown, that how you engage the merchants might be different than how you do how you engage uh, merchants in Greek town. And that you need to cascade your approach based on the people that are in front of you. Right? You can't just be what people would call a one-trick pony and say, well, every time I, I come up to somebody, I shake their hand. That's just how I started because that's what I learned from my dad and blah, 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 blah. Okay, but if the person is wearing um, some type of a headdress that might lead you to think, hmm, they may not want to shake hands with a male outside of their family, then you need to start cascading that approach so that you understand your community so that they feel like you understand them and that you actually care about them not to say i always put my hand up but to say you know what i recognize that this person has something that might be what i consider non-traditional maybe i'll wait till they put their hand up first to see if that is okay and if they don't put out their hand Maybe I just give them a little nod. Maybe we just start right off and engage in conversation. And that way that makes them feel more comfortable instead of saying, this is what I've always done. Because that little small investment in being able to say, I understand you or I am aware of you pays dividends down the road. Instead of them saying, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I don't shake hands with people that I don't know. I don't shake hands with men that aren't in my, instead of having that awkward situation, um, but we have, and law enforcement have to say, okay, we're on the beat, we're walking around, we're going to do things differently. But it requires some self-study first of your community to know your community before you start down that journey, right? And if you're working in, let's say, an area that has a high LGBTQ uh, population, you may have to do some more self-study to understand the historical context that they've experienced at the hands of law enforcement. And, but that, 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 that requires an organization to invest in its people so that they can invest in the community. And in this day and age where everything is so expensive and time is of the essence, it becomes problematic for a lot of police communities and a lot of police organizations to make that a priority. But here's what I always tell people. You don't want to wait till crisis to start dialogue. Right. You don't want to wait till there's something really bad 
with the LGBTQ community to say, okay, now we want to sit at the table and have these conversations. No, you want to do it now before there's a crisis. You don't want to wait till George Floyd to engage your black community. You don't want to wait until there's an issue with uh, a Sri Lankan background to say, okay, it's time to engage with our Tamil community. No, you want to start now and start that, that process now of giving your, your, your officers the tools to go out in that community ahead of time so that you're not waiting until crisis now sit down at the table and engage with the community. It requires some future thought, uh, thought some forethought, and requires that investment. And um, I feel like that's where both in the U.S. and Canada, we kind of fall short. I love that. And, and I mean, it speaks really to cultural competency, right? Because yes. the way that you've always done things, yes. like you talked about earlier on, at your table, you had bangers and mash and ackee and selfish, right? I mean, yeah. but at the end of the day, it, it's understanding different people's perspectives, their culture, yeah. what it is that is acceptable to them versus what's normal to you. And and, and I, I love that sort of thought process along the way. And you've been someone over the last 30 years who's really made an impact in, in some meaningful way to various communities. I know that the LGBTQ community is one that is very close to your heart. You've done a lot of work with that community. Was that always the case? Was that always a, a community that you um, accepted and, and, and wanted to, to help? Or is that something that evolved over time? How did that sort of come together? Yeah, that, that evolved over time. You know, I grew up in a, in a, in a household under Reverend Ivan Richards. And, uh, you know, and I, I didn't have any gay friends growing up, you know, and if, if I did, I didn't know they were gay. <clears throat> and, and so, it, you know, the LGBTQ community just became the other. I wouldn't say that I was so much that I was anti-gay or lesbian, even though that is a, a huge sentiment in the Caribbean community, as much as it was, I don't know them and I don't need to know them. I'm not looking to hurt them. But I've got I have no interest in them as well, kind of thing. And I just like you live your life, I'm living my life. I hear all about you people. I don't know any of you people. That's kind of that's just how I was uh, as a as a young man growing up. Then I uh, I became the diversity coordinator with the Durham Regional Police, and that was one of the first uh, uh, agendas on that I set for myself was I need to engage in this community. I need to know what this is all about. Obviously, we have gay and lesbian officers on on, a, on our uh, on our service, um, but I didn't I didn't I didn't want them to feel like I was using them, so I never actually reached out to any of them to start with. I just wanted to go cold turkey and find some organizations within the LGBTQ community and start there first, because I I didn't want my approach to come to my officers and to I didn't want it to be interpreted as being disingenuous just because. You know, well, I, you know, you're gay, and and I need to learn about this. Tell me, right? So I I stayed clear of that. <clears throat> so I started engaging in in different uh, community members, queer parenting, um, Pride Durham, uh, P Flag, and and um, you know, I I made that investment because I truly cared, and and I remember having this almost this epiphany of how did I miss this my whole life. You know, and this because I just didn't know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, and and I truly cared, as you said, it's close to my heart. And, you know, I, I was one of the founding members of, of, of uh, our uh, pride prom. And, uh, you know, I, I I truly cared and I truly want to gauge the community. And, and I know they sense that as well. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my own time with the community. It wasn't just. Uh, a job for Keith Richards or Consul Richards or Sergeant Richards. It was, they need me. I need them more than they need me. <clears throat> and, and they're my friends, you know, and, and over the course of about 15 years, they became my friends. I, I would have never dreamed that I have this many gay and lesbian friends. I just wouldn't have, I would not have dreamt that. And, and I do now, and I'm proud to say that I do. And, uh, but it took some investment on my part <clears throat> to 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 break down those barriers because they knew I was an officer. You know, if you think about things like uh, Stonewall in the U.S. or whether you think about 
uh, you know, uh, the bathhouses in, in Toronto in the 70s. Um, police did not have, uh, we don't have a good track record with the gay and lesbian community. And, and I knew that. Um, but I was, I, I wanted them to overlook that and I wanted them to see that that's not me. And so I spent, even though I, most of the time I was always in uniform, I spent a lot of investment in them seeing who I was as a person. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and there was some barriers to break down for sure. Um, there are probably some people that I never did reach, um, which is, which is okay. You, you know, you can't reach everybody, but it completely changed me. Um, and it, it was, it was a blessing because I fast forward now in life. And I think I have two young girls <clears throat> who are very LGBTQ friendly, primarily because they've seen my experiences. Had I not had that gifted opportunity to engage in the gay and lesbian community, I probably don't, my kids probably have a different perspective, but they could see what I was doing. I was I'd sit at the dinner table and I was educating all the time. My kids will tell you even to this day, you know, it's not just sitting at the dinner table. It's okay. <laughs> I know for at least the next 15 minutes, you can't go anywhere. So, so <laughs> this is not going to be some idle chit chat, you know? And so, um, but they, they saw that investment. They knew that my, 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 my love of the community was genuine and, uh, and that rubbed off. I wasn't my intent was to try and change their perspective, but that was the outcome is that I have kids that are very uh, balanced in how they see the LGBTQ community, notwithstanding other communities as well. And, uh, and it's great because now I have like these lifelong friends um, within the community that I, I could not have dreamt. Um, you know, a decade, decade and a half ago of having. So, yeah, it's, it's changed me. And again, helping me change others is, is what it's all about. I love that. And, you know, there's something you mentioned that I wanted to ask you because, you know, once again, we're friends outside of work and, you know, we talk about, you you know, for, for our guest, I have a young daughter. Um, you know, Keith gave me some wonderful advice about, you know, making sure I take tons of video and like, you know, I've always taken pictures, but I've definitely started to take more video. But you talked about being at the kitchen table and having that 15 minutes where, you know, everyone's got to eat. We're going to talk. We're going to have some meaningful conversation. How much of, of what you were able to, because both your daughters are amazing. Uh, how much of what you poured into them around that kitchen table and the actions that you took, do you believe helped to influence what they saw and how they also look at the world through their lens and their perspective? Uh, it was huge. You know, they know that I have, I have zero tolerance for bias in my house. Um, they know that there's a certain uh, code of conduct that is expected of you as a human being, not as a member of the Richards family, as a human being. They know that if somebody is in distress, you don't pull out your phone, you go over and help, right? And, and I've drilled that into my kids, that you don't sit on the sidelines and, and break out the popcorn, you get involved. Because if you were on the receiving end, you would hope somebody else got involved and not pull up their cell phone. So my kids, they know it's a learning opportunity. Um, and, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, anytime I learn something at work or learn something in the community, I would be like saving that for the next time we sit down and, and, and then I'm preaching and teaching, you know, and, and, uh, I, you know, I, I just caught myself because, you know, they would start waiting for, if there's a topical issue, let's say like George Floyd, they'd be like, okay, the next day, like, okay, let's give him the floor because we know it's coming. Right. And which was kind of neat. And then I, when I, when I started noticing it. You know, I was, I was doing it at work as well when I was still an officer, but I didn't notice I was doing that work as well <laughs> as an officer. And it was neat because I had this one officer, she went away to Cuba and she sent me a picture of a sign in Cuba. And, she, and I, I don't remember what exactly what the wording, wording was on the sign, but it basically was something that we in Canadian society would say, well, that's kind of inappropriate for you to have on a store sign. And she sent me this message and she sent the sign and it wasn't a big deal. What it, what she said afterwards was the big deal. And she said, Keith, five years ago, I don't give that sign a second thought. Because of you, now I'm scrutinizing things around me. And this is while she's on vacation in Cuba, right? And, and it's less about what the sign said in Cuba and more about that I have somebody now that is uh, 
diligently scrutinizing the world differently as a result of being engaged with me. And that's kind of, you know, that, that's kind of my, 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 my goal with discourse is how can I plant the seeds so that people can go out there and be diligent about how they scrutinize the world? Right. And that's so that's that's my my present goal. But it was, it was neat because that's when I kind of felt like I had arrived in my unit is when somebody starts sending me pictures on vacation saying you're in my head and that you're making me look at the world differently. And that's to me, that's that's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's funny when I retired a couple of months ago, one of the officers did a speech and part of that speech was about how Keith was always teaching, always teaching us something whether it be about language, whether it be about culture, whether it be about communication, you know, and, and I didn't realize I was doing it. I, you know, it just, it's just, that's just who I am, you know, always teaching all, and people are always learning as a result of being around you, you know? And so, you know, to me, that, that was, that was probably the biggest compliment I could have gotten. Not about, you know, who you rescued as an officer and some high profile call that you did and how you saved some people from a burning house, which are admirable things as well. But those things, when I, here's what I look at. When you think about an officer, you know, pulling somebody out of a burning house or something like that, admirable, high risk, that officer could have died, the people could have died, very important. But that is almost like winning the high intensity lottery that you were given by chance. What I was doing in terms of engaging other officers and other civilians in my unit is by choice, right? And it's a daily choice. You might only go into a burning house once in your entire career, but I'm going to engage in thought every day of your career, that you're at least the, where you and me are in the same space. And, and, and so that is a whole different frame of reference on policing, on learning, on experience, right? And so for me, that was always my thing is I've now left the Durham Regional Police, but I know that I planted lots of seeds of engagement behind me with a hope that that legacy will continue. Not necessarily that they will teach others, well, they might teach others, but that maybe when they engage other people, that the empathy and education that I bestowed upon them, they will then be able to bestow upon each other or even members of the community. And, and I did that every day, you know, and, uh, you know, it's those kind of things that sometimes need to be celebrated is people that just do the right thing for the right reason, uh, not waiting for this heightened opportunity of chance to, to engage, right? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's just been this really neat journey. And that's why, my friend, you are a local superhero because everyone and I, and I got to be honest with you. I mean, anyone I say, oh, yeah, Keith Richards, he's now, you know, come over to disc. You got Keith Richards. <laughs> and I remember you saying like just sort of that last couple months leading up, everyone was sort of like, where are you going to land? Like, what are you going to do after Keith? Yeah. So let me ask you, I mean, you've been doing policing 30 plus years, a career that is easily celebrated for many accomplishments way too many to to list what are you most proud of that is a that is a great great question you know and and, and i think a lot about you know what am i most proud of and uh i would probably arguably say uh that you know that there isn't one thing because i, I feel like there's too many to list that, that I think uh, I can say I was most proud of, but I will say my, my proudest moments uh, were um, when I was retiring and the youth and policing students did a farewell video. And uh, they did a farewell video for me, talking about two months ago. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was tough to watch. It was tough because it was it was from a place of love. And, you know, they had brought in youth and policing students that were now police officers. They brought in youth and policing students that are now, that are now parents and, and doing careers and all that great stuff. And, uh, you know, it was uh, it was touching to see that reflection. You know, it was it was like, you know, it was, it was this experience of, OK, it's time for you to see the legacy or at least some of the legacy of, of, of your, your hard work. And, uh, I, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I was like always like a horse with the blinders on. I would just focus on who was in front of me. Okay, move on to the next move on. And I never looked back. Not that I didn't care, but I felt like there were so many people in front of me 
that I didn't have time to ever look back because I had to go find the next person that needed me. And this was my probably the first time in my life, not even my career, where I uh, took a walk back or somebody, these guys, these kids made me take a walk back. And it was very emotional for me. You know, it's funny. Uh, when they surprised me with this video, they, I was in so much shock that I almost didn't respond to the video. And because uh, it was just, you know, the room was full of people and I'm watching this video and it's this whole self-reflection of my career and, you know, and people chiming in and all that kind of stuff. And then they gave me a copy and then I went home and I bawled my eyes out <laughs> because now I was home and, and I was, the surprise was now gone. So now I could look at the video for what it was. And it was very touching because I had never looked back. You know, I, I, I've been a high school coach, coaching wrestling and football for, for almost 30 years uh, while maintaining a family, while maintaining a career. So I had any more time, I would leave Durham Regional Police and go straight over to coach um, football and wrestling. And, uh, you know, I coached for, you know, most of the school year. And some of those kids that I coached have also become police officers. And some of them are on the videos. And it, it was this this lifelong self-reflection on, hey, Keith, you've never looked back to see the legacy of what you did until now. And so that was, that was uh, arguably the greatest accomplishment that I actually feel like I I'm still writing the narrative. So it's, it's really weird because it's like my greatest accomplishment that I'm still accomplishing because I'm, mm. still, I'm still engaged with, with, with um, pride prom. Um, I held on to some of the, the youth things that I was doing on the side. I'll go back to coaching as soon as COVID allows for school sport to continue. And uh, so, you know, it's like, I'm still writing the narrative on something that I've already had acknowledged. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's part of my life. You know, and, and but I've never looked back until that moment. And uh, so that was that was amazing to me. And as I said, and you're right, Victor, I, the reason why I think that I'm so passionate about engaging young people is because that was a life changer for me. Although I've never actually thought about it until, <laughs> funny, until this conversation, but it truly was a life changer for me. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I guess this is my way of emotionally paying it forward by going and engaging and, and I really didn't have a plan. It just it just happened that way, you know. So uh, uh, it's made for an amazing career, and and you know now my I'm, the next chapter is uh, just gonna be just as amazing. I love that, and you know it's funny you talk about youth and policing. That for me was um, out of my you know seven plus years or so with DRPS on that advisory committee. I think one of my greatest. Um, points of reflection would have been the keynoting of, of the one year, the, the, the youth and policing and facilitating a bunch of workshops with some of these young people and, and really, uh, being able to make an impact because some of them would come back and say, I can't believe your story. Yeah. I can't believe where you come from and, and how you've been able to progress. And I think that, you know, being able to make an impact on these young people is, is such a rewarding yeah. Experience, uh, you know, not me not monetarily a lot of times, but just in terms of fulfillment and inner, inner wealth, if you will. Yeah. You know, you've been someone who's been doing diversity, equity, inclusion work for a very long time. Um, you've made some significant impacts and strides. What advice would you give to someone who's just starting out on this journey? Um, education. Education is, is key. Uh, it's very easy and it's very convenient to, you know, find somebody and ask them questions. But at some point, we as humans have to make some investment in ourselves. So start doing some research, start doing some reading. You don't have this. Ideally, you want some formalized opportunities, um, but it's, you know, going down this journey requires you to care, right? I can't teach empathy. I can, I can, now I can appeal to your empathetic side but you have to care first and then once you open that door of caring then i can make that deposit of information or that positive engagement but you have to care first you have to invest in yourself first i can't invest with you unless you care enough to invest in yourself um and you know for me it was about it's about trying to uh engage in different streams of opportunity you want to take some formalized learning you want to do some self-study and you want to talk to people about their lived experience. And it doesn't matter who you talk to. Um, 
the only thing I would caution is when you're talking to people about the lived experience, it is their lived experience. So there's a certain element of respect in how you ask somebody about their lived experience. Uh, now, if it's me, you can say, you can ask me any way you want. I won't be offended. But that's me, and that's the world according to Keith Richards. Other people might get knee-jerked depending on how you ask them the question. You might, you know, if you walked up to me and said, hey, Keith, you're black. Can you tell me what the black community thinks? Blah, 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 blah. Well, I can't tell you what the whole community thinks. There's millions of them. I can tell you what Keith Richards thinks. Um, and approaching me that way won't offend me. But I know that approaching others like that will offend them. So it also depends on the relationship with the person that you're going to engage in the first place. Don't use that cookie cutter uh, response to engage everybody because different people respond differently. But you want to do that almost like that trifecta of uh, engage in conversation with people, meaningful and respectful conversation, uh, take an opportunity for some formalized learning and engage in some self-study. You need those three uh, in order to come along. And, and, and really, they will all come into play if you truly care. And if you don't care, I can't do anything about that. That is not something I'm capable of changing. You have to care first, and the three will come along. Um, because it's, it's, it's all about having that empathy and having that empathetic scope that will allow you or guide you to, to engage with people and to actually learn. Um, as I said, I, I kind of, you know, when I, when I um, took up the diversity position for the German Regional Police, I could never have dreamt that I would be in front of classes and facilitating on diversity, equity, inclusion. I could have never have dreamt that I would have joined uh, the board of directors for Pride Durham. I could never have dreamt that I would get multiple um, awards, national awards from Peak Flag Canada. I would have never have dreamt that I would be leading the, the number one youth engagement opportunity in the country. It just, it just, these are things that I could not have dreamt um, that I'm proud to say I was part of in the first place. And, uh, but it, it required me to care. It required me to have that empathetic side open to suggestion, open to dialogue and open to what others have experienced first. So that's kind of where it starts for people. That's where it should start for people. And, and, and let your heart be your guide. Don't let your brain be your guide because sometimes your brain will betray you. Um, because it'll make you think you're seeing things that you don't see, but pretty much your heart is a good place to start. You know, it's funny when when I when I think about the work that I'm doing with this course, I always tell people, I'm going to appeal to your heart before I can change your mind. Right? You have to start with the heart first, not the mind first. So, I know some some people that can be hard, especially if you're somebody that's a very staunch evidence-based blah blah blah, and I, I want to see the facts. No, you don't need to see the facts first. You need to hear about the experiences first. The facts you can always look at later, but it's the, the experiences that will lead you down this journey. Man, wow. I think that's a, a mini masterclass on just getting started in this in this in this space, right? Because it's really truly about opening up and 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 looking at the person in the mirror and making some of those initial changes before you can start going down some of the other roads because there are many roads and, and you know, we're here to, to help people lead down that path. But let me ask you this. We ask every guest, same question. How do you think as a society we can move closer to a culture of belonging and respect? You know, that, that's a, it's, you know, you get some great questions here. Uh, you know, I think that for us to move as a culture and a society, um, we have to be willing to listen without judgment. Right. Uh, we have to be able to consider other people's perspectives without uh, being defensive. Um, and, and that can be hard. It requires some work. Because usually what happens is you're surrounded by a lot of good people. And good people don't want to think bad. And good people don't want to be perceived as being bad. And so it's when somebody turns around and says to you, A, B, C, and D, you know, ooh, I didn't like what they just said. But I'm a good person. Well, yeah, you probably are a good person. But it doesn't, you can't deny what their lived experiences are. And so for a society to move forward, we have to be able to be open to suggestion without trying to defend ourselves or trying to defend our honor, right? Or trying to rewrite somebody else's narrative because that might be their lived experience. That requires a lot of work. 
because good people don't want to be perceived as being not good. Um, and, and it took some work for me to allow people to say things about whether it be the black community or say things about policing and for me not to knee jerk back and defend their honor. And, 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 and I've, I've gotten pretty good at it now where you can say A, B, C, and D and I'll say, the, the most I might say is I'm sorry that that's happened or I'm sorry that that's your experience, but I'm glad we're here talking now. Instead of saying, no, 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 you got it wrong. This is what really happened. No, if that is your lived experience and that's, that's, that's your position, I respect that. And now let's have a conversation about how we can move forward. I'm not here to defend anybody. I'm here to say, how do we engage in meaningful dialogue so that we can hear each other and we can move forward? So that's the, it's a tough one. It requires some practice, but uh, that's, I, that's how society is going to move forward. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, my friend. You know, if, if our guests want to hear more nuggets and wisdom from Keith, please follow us on social media. We're going to be putting out more content where we're going to have discussions. We're going to be creating content around the things that matter because now that my friend is retired officially, we are going to be able to really turn this thing up and make a huge impact in the lives of people because we're going to continue the good work that we were doing together the work that he was doing, uh, you, you folks will meet Chris soon enough. And, and, you know, we're constantly adding to this because it's a movement to make change. And that's what we're trying to do. So there you have it, folks. The truth, according to Keith Richards. Thank you all very much. Thank, Thank you. you, my friend. Okay. Take care. You too, buddy. Thank you so much for listening. Our show is sponsored by Discourse. We build belonging into the DNA of DEI. You can visit us on the web at discourseagency.com or check out our YouTube channel, Discourse Agency. Make sure you hit that subscribe button, leave a review, drop a comment, and most importantly, share it with a fellow human. Thank you so much for your support. And remember, your truth is your experience. Bye for now.